Hello everyone, welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. Today my guest is composer Elliot Lung. Elliot is a Chinese composer, and if you're not familiar with him, he burst on the scene a couple years back with his debut film score for Operation Red Sea, which ended up being, at the time, the second highest grossing film in China's history. Now it's been pushed back to around 7th or 8th place. Elliot has since continued to score major Chinese blockbusters, including his latest, which came out this weekend, called Battle at Lake Changjin. This might come as a surprise, but that film, I believe, is actually the highest-grossing film worldwide this weekend. Insanely popular and well-received in China. Now, I'm not sure if it will receive a wider release in the rest of the world, but I know that Elliot's score is not out yet, but... I'm told, is going to be coming out soon. Now, given Elliot's style, I expect it to be quite epic in scope, with a mixture of orchestral work and electronics. After all, he is a pianist and cellist, the latter of which I think is his preference. This was actually a lot of fun. Elliot and I didn't know each other beforehand, just exchanging a few messages here and there on Instagram, but a lot of fun in this conversation. I didn't expect to really be talking about Things from my childhood like Halo and Pokemon, but who knows what detours a conversation might take. You can find more information about Elliot on his website and also connect with him on social media. Of course, you can do the same for me. Bit of an advanced notice, but as happens sometimes with remote recordings, some of the audio is a bit out of your control. So you'll notice some knocking noises on Elliot's side that I've tried to reduce, but it happens. That said, there's nothing severe enough to really hamper your enjoyment. So, sit back and enjoy. I'm so glad you could join me. I know that you've been crazy busy these last, I don't know, three or four months since the first time we touched base. So, so thanks for joining me. Yeah. No worries, Stan. Yeah, pleasure. Well, man, so yeah, I know that you've just wrapped up the Battle at Lake Changjin. It's going to be a big war epic directed by Dante Lam, Tsui Hark, and I hope I'm not forgetting what anyone else. So... That's got to be exciting to work on that. Director Chen Kaige, so you know the one. There are three. There are three. All right. Yeah. So it's a, a Korean war film. So what's your score going to be like? Can you give us a little sneak preview before it comes out? The Battle of Lake Changjin. Okay. Um, I approached the score thinking I, I, I originally thought I was going to um, use Korean traditional elements since it was a Korean war. It was, I think, last year that they approached me and they wanted me to write for it. Back then, I didn't know too much about the Korean War, so I had to do a lot of research to read up on it. And also, coincidentally, asked my dad about it because my dad's a history expert. After I found out much more about it, I decided to ditch the Korean War elements and went with, uh... Well, I suppose I went with what I did best. I, like... I like mixing my electronic palette into my my orchestra, so I went with a hybrid um, a hybrid score that features uh, all time signatures and and off rhythms and such. Mainly, I did that mainly because when I when I do films for with a very very heavy sound effect department, I like to do things that don't necessarily conflict with the effects department, so like gunshots, um, explosions. I don't want to do things that 
sound similar to that department. So then in the mix of the movie, both both of us, as in myself and the sound designer and the and the effects guy, both both our work kind of pops up and we don't fight with each other. That's something I actually noticed watching The Rescue, which is a, a film that you did about a year and a half or so ago. It has a lot of heavy explosions in sound design, and the score in the sound design has a kind of delicate dance where one will take precedence over the other and then change. Yeah, so I always imagine that that's got to be a tough balance. So what are like what yeah, are some of the sounds or instruments or palette specifics that you use to make sure that there isn't that sort of clash? Oh, uh, good question. The rescue, we spent a long, t- long time mixing the, the rescue, and with Dante, Dante is a director I worked with for quite some time, and uh, with all the films I uh, write with and for Dante, I, I'm very heavily involved in the mixing process as well. We would be in the mix room, and uh, I'd have my input on the mix as well, whereas some composers don't like to be involved in that creative process. A lot of the way I do things is to, let's say, it's kind of like um, when you do any kind of calculus kind of problem, you have like a given, these are the elements you have in the scene, and this, these are the the question mark elements, and that's your kind of thing you can create around. So then when I work with my sound designer, he would be, he would tell me, hey, this is the kind of sound I want to use for, let's say, like a helicopter propeller. It sounds like boom, 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 boom something like that, and he would send, send me a sample, and then I could reimagine that sound and put it in a musical context, or I could work my way around that sound, or I could tell him, hey, could you, can you not use, like, say, like, the mid-high spectrum, something like that, right? First, the first way to work around that is to, first of all, collaborate, <laughs> uh, and work, work out what, how much of the sound spectrum you want to take in a particular, let's say, set piece or scene and the other way was to let's say oh my sound designer I, oh no i really need my propellers to be really heavy here or let's say in the rescue there's a scene in the rapids i remember water was flowing very quickly there were loose rocks falling and there were a lot of impact sounds and, and a helicopter propeller so then you kind of have to like piece out let's say like when there's a gap in in sound, then that's your moment to shine, right? You like pull right in there. Let's say we really need to hear these like clunky rocks falling down in the water, and the, so that's like a percussive sound, like a that kind of sound, right? So then the way I worked around that was to I still want to build tension, but then I wouldn't be building tension with very hard hitting rhythms, so to say. The way I build tension, I could be using some timbral elements in say like violent harmonics glitzes little psycho like bernard herman that kind of stuff i suppose it's how you work around it but not and not a particular sound i use because there's so many different sounds there's no one size for all oh use this and you will evade the entire like sound effect department so (laughs) yeah that's kind of the business of being a composer for film, TV, video games, etc. Like, there's yeah, not yeah. one size fits all for anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, not. <laughs> yeah. One one thing you mentioned that caught my attention particularly was mentioning working in the actual mixing. 
And I know, too, I can't remember if it was Operation Red Sea or The Rescue, or maybe it was both, where Dante had actually brought you in quite early into the production to begin working, too. And I think all of those aspects are pretty rare in film scoring in the U.S. or in the U.K., where it's very much a luxury to have more than six or eight weeks. So is that something that's been that's been normal for you, both in your experience and then kind of in the, like, the Chinese Hong Kong film industry broadly? No, I'd say it's it's a very, very rare, rare it's very rare that a, a director does that. With my other films, I that's something I did not do. When you first got in touch with me, I was working on The Battle of Lake Challenging and actually another film as well. So I was on two films. That film's released next year in Chinese New Year. So for that film, it was a very standard protocol, so to say. They wrapped cutting and then they were looking for composers and then the production company called my agent and so on and so forth. So pretty standard. With Dante, it's different because um, Battle of Lake Changi is our fourth project together. We're working on our fifth one right now, but I can't disclose it right now. But with that kind of partnership, I know very clearly what what he likes, what he wants, and that really fits well into what I like and what I want. So that's just, that's a very natural thing that like, I don't take that for granted. And that's also, that doesn't happen to everybody <laughs> uh, because he wants me to know the full picture and be very involved. He, I've never been involved to uh, in, in the films to such a high degree as uh, with the rescue. So the rescue, I was involved, involved even before they started writing the script, which is incredibly rare. I think, I spent three and four months on set when they were shooting and then uh, with the entire post-production in the mix room and after I recorded in Vienna. Yeah, that's, that's almost unheard of, <laughs> uh, especially uh, over here that's unheard of. I'm, uh, I'm not, not sure how it works in the US or the UK. That's so cool. And it's, it's awesome that you've not just getting that kind of room to work, but then continuing that relationship with Dante as well. One thing that I was curious about, you mentioning going on set for like three or four months, and I've heard from different composers, some like that experience and it it forms their score, others couldn't care less about it. (laughs) (laughs) For you, what's what's the benefit of being on set, seeing everything happening versus seeing dailies or seeing it locked a picture however many months later? I I actually quite liked it. I was on set for a few reasons. I was on set because a few scenes were very musically involved in the rescue. So then the actors were actually performing my music live Mm. in the picture. So then I had to be there for those scenes, obviously, because it's safer with me around when they're performing my music. If something goes wrong, I'd be the first guy to say, hey! We need cut or something. So I, I wouldn't say that, but hey, something's not right about, about with this take, and uh, maybe we should do another one, or maybe we shouldn't keep this one in, so on and so forth. Uh, so that was reason number one. Reason number two was uh, there's a very integral part of the script that is very heavily score related. So then the screenwriter actually wrote in the script where Elliot's gonna write a piece here. <laughs> <laughs> and that was that was part of the script. So, so then that part was tossed to me as we were filming, as we were working on that. I was also writing that part, and I would have meetings with the screenwriter and also Dante to kind of get that part in six. Because if that part's not intact, we can't film it. That's part of the script. So that's reason number two. Uh, reason number three was uh, 
Well, we had some ideas of what we want the rescue to sound like musically. Both I had some ideas, Sanchez had some ideas, but we haven't been able to, at least when we started filming, we haven't been able to pinpoint, hey, okay, this is what it's going to be like. So bringing me on set was also just another way for me and Dante to spend more time with each other to work on other things. And I brought some pieces of my simple pieces of my music equipment to set up in my hotel and Dante would come over and we would <laughs> talk about music every now and then. The other thing we did was how we, uh, well initially I had some themes written down so then the cast and some members of the crew they were able to listen to that and say oh okay and, they, and so then they had a better picture of what's going on too mm-hmm. and compared to like when I talked to my set designer and um, and all of that they would tell me oh hey um these are the colors I want to use to build this set, you know. And I, 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 I love colors. That's one of the elements I really, I, that I really bounce off of and get inspiration from. So then when he's telling me, oh, hey, this scene, we're going to use uh, shades of blue, uh, tints of, uh, shades of orange, and hints of maybe, let's say, white. And I start having maybe some instruments in my head of how I want to pair these colors with instruments and things like that. So the entire process becomes much more collaborative which i really appreciate rather than and you you feel much closer to the entire production rather than seeing everything on screen and you feel oh i'm just writing music and it's it's much bigger than that and i do appreciate that when i was on set but i think that that comes in as far as the the whole the whole process of making a film is so collaborative you have hundreds of people and tens of billions of dollars over however many months to create something that's an hour and a half, two hours long. It's like a miracle it happens in the first place. So, yeah, I, I totally agree that you can hear it and see it when people are actually allowed to be more involved. I mean, that's crazy because I've never heard any composer be that involved in that many aspects of a film. Honestly. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, with that, being involved in part of the, the writing process, hearing about what the set design is going to be like in a particular scene. Does it ever get to a point where it's like too many inputs, like it's overwhelming? Or is, is everything a bit more inspiration that, that feeds your score? Okay, so it, ha- it hasn't been overwhelming. I'm not, sure if it, I'm not sure if this keeps up and everyone's feeding bombing me with information. I'm not sure what it will. But so far it's been fine. The only people who really concretely work on the musical part of the film it's obviously me and Dante has his input uh, as, I mean some other people usually have one-off inputs sometimes I listen to them sometimes I don't as in collaborative comments in, in that aspect it doesn't come from like say like 20 or 500 people so that that keeps it very streamlined and simple as in terms of um, looking for other sources of, of inspiration I think um, I think it was me who asked for these things at first. I asked for what colors he was going to use. Martin, that's his name. He showed me a few scale models of the set pieces we're going to be filming in uh, way before we, we started filming. Essentially, I, I, I went into the world he created. In, it's like the, the, the architect in the Inception. So I was, <laughs> I was, I was in his world. Um, he was showing me around. That was fun for me. That was it was new for me. I've never worked with a set designer in such a close way because you know I'm in post production. He's in pre production, <laughs> and uh, I didn't have any like like let's say 
themes or instruments, so to say, when he was speaking, and maybe like a one or two. But then, to me, it was quite intriguing when I when he was explaining what he was thinking when he saw the script, like things things like that. When when the cinematographer was was rehearsing his sort of uh, his angles and how he had he had so much you know poetic movement in some of these shots that I never imagined and definitely took some of his cinematography movement and I made it into a few phrases of melodic contours following his you know let's say it, it goes up it very gently flows down that kind of thing and I I'd say it's more it's been more helpful than it was not um, for the most part I quite enjoyed it even even some of the how. One of the actors, her name was Xin Zilei, and she was the one I worked closest with. She had to perform a part of my score live, and the way she portrayed the character was completely different of how I thought she, I thought an actor would. And so, so then, I actually changed her theme after I worked two, three months with her.、Uh, I actually completely scrapped the theme before and I rewrote it. Because of how differently she, I I thought the character would be portrayed. <laughs> so see that so that's something that's I suppose super helpful on set. I've never spent that much time with the cast with Usain Jalei. I was basically seeing her every day for like maybe three months because she had to learn the part, and <laughs> and so again that's super rare, and I've never heard of anything remotely like that. I haven't either. I mean, and I think that's one of, one of the reasons is probably again because it's that level of involvement is so uncommon. You know, you you basically have to take whatever comes into your mind first. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Time was a very very big luxury on the rescue. That was also before the pandemic, so we had more time. So that's that's interesting. Has for you has it felt like the pandemic has given you less time or made de- deadlines tighter? Because I've heard it go both ways from. Composers. Interesting. Yeah, it's def- it definitely made many things tighter for for me this year. Mainly because we were no one knew when cinemas were gonna open again. There was a there was a moment where it's safe for everything to open again, and no one knew like no one could pencil. Hey, everything's gonna be fine in June or in you know in August.、Uh, no one was able to say that four months earlier. So then we were in post production, and all of a sudden we would get the notice. We're gonna release the film now, <laughs> and then so so everyone's like, oh no, <laughs> and then so you kind of have to, and it's more than just、uh, oh we need to release a film. We kind you kind of have to see the bigger picture of where if we don't release the film, cinemas have nothing to show, and then cinema like it will put the cinemas in a very tough position too. And then so it's more than just oh hey you have no time to do your stuff. You have a bigger role on your hands to fulfill. It's nice to give people something to look forward to and something to watch,、uh, when they're headed for the holidays in the brief moment of time, however long it is to, you know, catch a movie. And it's it's a tradition for a lot of families to 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 catch. Let's say like oh, let's catch the blockbuster in let's say mid autumn festival. It's a, it's one of our public holidays or one of those festivals that's next week. Oh, it's like oh, let's catch a movie with our family. Everyone's with their family and. If there's nothing to watch, then then it's kind of like a party killer, and so we had that in mind, and we knew what was going on. So then everyone did their part, and we we worked towards that goal. That's really interesting because that's a a big controversy or topic of conversation in the U.S. of the future of theaters and different production companies putting things right on streaming or doing day and date releases where it'll come out in theater and on 
Netflix on the same day. And yeah, there are all these different different viewpoints and different people have their own personal ambitions to fulfill. So I think it's very interesting that throughout this process, you and it sounds like other people involved in uh, in the production, post-production, have that loftier or broader goal in mind of, we need to get this out because people need to see it, theaters need to show it. So I, I don't know, I, I appreciate that because I think that sort of thing, the bigger impact that film can have on people and society is often forgotten sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, that's something I did when I was a kid. I was, or even that's something I do when I'm like not working on killer deadlines right now. Every week and not be catching a film. I mean, I still need to see Dune. That's released like I think two days ago. I need to catch it maybe like next week. And most of my childhood was very film heavy, and um, that's the same with a lot of people here. And a lot, of th- a lot of times when filmmakers or or even just myself when I work on a film, it, you forget the impact the film's gonna have, but you forget. Basically, like, everyone's going to watch it. Like, the film I just worked on, basically everyone's going to watch it if they have the opportunity to. So when you kind of think about that as you're working, you're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I probably should get on working. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I'm not sure how the whole streaming is definitely not playing out as the U.S., how streaming is playing out in over here. People still love the cinema because it's, uh, you know, it's a cinematic spe- spectacle. You go to screen, you go to cinema... And you have a big screen, you have the great sound system. And I think it's uh, for a lot of families, it's actually, and, and friends, so to say, the cinema is great. And there's also part tradition. There's a big festival. We're supposed to watch a movie. Like, we're supposed to go to the cinema or else it wouldn't feel like we are, we're on holiday or something like that. So that's tradition intertwined into the, it's, it's part of, I suppose, a part of culture. And when they stay at home and they go on Netflix, it's, it's not the same and you don't feel like you're... It's not festive. There you go. That's the word. <laughs> it's not festive. It doesn't. It doesn't have that event feeling. You know, like something. Yeah, exactly. In the yeah. U.S., like, or I guess, hell, this it was everywhere. Like Infinity War and Endgame. Right. Mm-hmm. But but I know it's it's similar in a lot of Chinese productions. Like I remember seeing Wandering Earth or uh, Wolf Warrior Two came oh, out, yeah. and it's interesting seeing that it came out like being in the u.s because it's not here but i can see like the duban or maoyan ratings and like the box office coming in in china and like it capturing the the zeitgeist and being that big yeah yeah those are great movies i really like the wandering earth we'll stay on this narrative for a little bit moving away from some of the pure film music stuff talking about you seeing movies very often every week if you can going all the way back to your childhood. Like, what are some of the, the memorable films you saw? Obviously, some of them are going to be coming from, or might be coming from the West, but, like, some of them won't be as well. So I think I had a very strange childhood. Um, my my Saturdays, for the longest time, was went from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. in music school. I was uh, in orchestra. I was playing cello for the most part. And then after 6 p.m., usually I'd go to concerts. So it was 8 to 10, maybe, 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. Uh, so that was like a Saturday was like concert day or music day. And then Sunday would be like, oh, we'll just catch a film, I'll watch a film and a film day. As a kid, because I was, I think I've, I've been playing orchestra since I was like five years old or something. So then I, because I was in orchestra so early, all the films I watched on Sunday, obviously I would, because the day before I was in very intensive orchestra. So then the next day I'd, I would be, oh, hey, look at all these orchestral instruments playing in the film. I remember, I think the first film I managed to do that was uh, The Lion King. 
That was one of the first films I had. I still I can still recall being a kid and being able to pinpoint all the instruments and oh hey there's a melody here. Obviously I can't use like the terminology I do now, but then I was hey look oh there's a oboe or whatever and ended up watching that a few times and I didn't know it was called film scoring then. I I just thought you know there's music that goes with the film and and everything managed to sync up and I thought that was super cool as a kid. And then there, there are some other movies from from Hong Kong then that also had that kind of impact in another way. So uh, I, I think when I was a kid, a lot of a lot of these Disney movies, I watched a lot of Disney movies. That sort of film scoring and song, even sometimes, because like The Little Mermaid, that's like a musical almost. There's so many songs, and I suppose that was like the the fun thing to do. But I never really thought I was gonna. Go into that direction. <laughs> um, I, if you if I had to pick one as a kid, that definitely would be Lion King. It's so funny. The Lion King is that's the first movie I ever saw in theaters as well. Oh, cool! Yeah. <laughs> I had uh, you know no musical talent, so I couldn't pinpoint anything. But I'm sure you know who knows. I've seen that movie a million times. We talked about Wandering Earth really briefly, and I know the the composer for that's Rock Chen. Rock, yeah, it's rock, yeah. Yeah, and it's one thing that does frustrate me from, like, the U.S.-centric point of view is that so many composers outside of the U.S. and the U.K., it's it's kind of as if they don't exist here. There isn't that sort of <laughs> inroad. I mean, it's it sounds a little blunt, but it unfortunately it's true. Yeah. Like, there are tons of, like, Bollywood composers, for instance, who you go on Spotify and have hundreds of thousands of listens a month, and... No one in the U.S. knows who they are. So, Rock Chen, I know um, Leon Ko was actually someone that you had worked with when you were first starting out in film music. Who are some other contemporary Chinese composers that you, know, you think people should should know about or that, that you enjoy as well? Definitely Tan Dun. <laughs> uh, Tan Dun is... Uh... You go into any kind of music environment and you name Tan Dun over here and everyone knows who he is. He was the guy who wrote the fantastic score to Hidden uh, so it's Hidden Tiger, Crouching Dragon. I always mix the English up. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Yeah. yeah there we go. Yeah, I always mix it up <laughs> with the English, the English translation. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a phenomenal score, and I think because of his background, his works that he his works are very very unique. Actually, most of his works are in the concert hall, so he writes for the orchestra for ensembles or for nature elements for water and rocks like some like stuff like that he stumbled into music by accident so to say uh, during the cultural revolution back in china and he was sent to beijing as part of his duties to to follow the the peking opera and that's when he learned all the music when he was a teen it was crazy times and then he somehow kept following the path of music and he's definitely one of the greatest who has, who has been a composer in, in, in China over here. I can't be sure, but I, I think he is still the, the head uh, of the Bard College of Music right now. Yeah, uh, definitely him. Um, Leon, Leon, I, I uh, worked for for a bit when I first started out. Uh, it was cool because um, with Leon, our approaches to music are very different. And so while he showed me the ropes, I was able to see, oh, okay, for, this is how we do things in the film industry. This is what needs to be done. All the, you know, the logistical stuff. And 
and and at the same time see how differently someone views a film and music completely different from how I would I would see it. That difference in perspective kind of kind of just showed me how oh you know other people not everybody thinks not everybody thinks like you or this is why stuff I think of is so to say unique or this is why I think this way and this is why he thinks this way and it translates into music but other other composers around this premise uh, I'm not sure how how Japanese composers are acquainted in the states or the UK but some of them are over there I greatly admire and also take inspiration from too in Japan a gentleman by the name of Toshihiko Hisashi his works are I'm not sure if he's so active but most of his works are again works I listened to as a kid <laughs> and uh, it's a very orchestral palette with um, his works over in Japan I, I'm not sure how how his works are viewed in the US or whether he's known in the out of Asia but yeah Toshihiko Hisashi I, I love his works uh, very symphonic I think the London Symphony Orchestra recorded two of his scores I think in 2008 yeah it's it's tough you know um, I think like Joe uh, Hisaishi's like maybe the most well known. Yes, yes, of course, of course. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's interesting. I think people in the U.S. might know more Japanese anime or game composers versus like pure film. But I think when when you're getting to that point, it's a bit more outside of the normal U.S. audience. For whatever reason, the U.S. is like really weird about um, like, anime, <laughs> animated films. There's a feeling that they're all like if it's animated, it's for children, at, at least coming into theaters. And so I just don't think the general audience has Rick and Morty. <laughs> yeah, Rick yeah. and Morty's not for children. <laughs> <laughs> well, then you know, BoJack yeah. Horseman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Animated shows can be for adults, but like we haven't gotten to the point where animated movies can be, or like anime has that. It's it's just weird. I don't know. The U.S. is a it's a weird place, man. <laughs> well. I, I was actually supposed to come, I think, two years ago, but I was stuck in Toronto. That's when the pandemic first happened. I'm, due, I'm still due to come uh, to LA uh, with a few meetings over there. I've been pushing it off with the pandemic, but I think be, I should be able to come next year. So it's been, it's been a long time since I've been back to the US, so I'm kind of looking for I'm sure it's a completely different animal now, but I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> I'm sure it depends where you go. But yeah, I mean, that's... I think it must come as a surprise for a lot of people. You know, we talked about this before we were recording that you went to school in the States for a little while and it was like, and it wasn't going to like USC or NYU or something. It was going to Wheaton College in about 30 miles west of Chicago. (laughs) I know you said you get this reaction of people are surprised and wonder why you did it. And when I read that too, I was like, why is someone from... Hong Kong going to this university out of every school in the U.S. And then I found some random interview that you did, and it was because Marty O'Donnell, who had composed the music for Halo, had also gone there. And I'd love that. I'd love that. Yeah, that's that's exactly why. Uh, Marty and I are very good friends now. I actually just called him, I think, last week or two weeks ago. <laughs> as a kid or as a teen, that was when I was in my teen years, uh, Halo was a global sensation. That was more than just the U.S. Uh, uh, everyone around the block was playing Halo. Um, Halo 1 and then Halo 2 and then Halo 3 was a mega hit. When I watch any movie or play any game as a kid, I would naturally just listen to the music as well because I was a 
music nerd, as everybody called me. Um, <laughs> and so Halo is one of those scores where when you're about to give up on something and you, you think about the first thought of why you were doing all of this, uh, to me, that'd actually be the Halo score and um, a very profound impact on my gaming experience. Um, yeah, therefore, I was like, yeah, let's just go ahead. And, I mean, obviously, I applied to other schools and also got into the NYUs and the USCs, but I'd like to say the more standard procedure route for <laughs> for film composers. Yeah, uh, even after we and I, I applied to a lot of graduate programs and most of them were willing to take me, but I decided to not go. But yeah, uh, that's why I went to, <laughs> to long story short, that's why I, went. I actually, I had very little, little knowledge of the school. I've never been there. I've, <laughs> I have, uh, uh, I don't know what's around it. I, I had no intel whatsoever. All I knew was, oh, Marty went there. Okay, we'll be fine. Let's just get there. <laughs> I love hearing that because the Halo score is... Like, the first game and then all the games afterwards were, were like, phenomena. But, man, the music to that first one, I have so many friends who were big gamers, have no real interest in music and, like, especially anything orchestral, but they have listened to that score hundreds of times on their own. I mean, it's so cool, the the impact of the effect that that game can have. And I'm I'm glad that, like games are getting more and more appreciation and recognition for their music because like mm-hmm. a lot of the best stuff's coming from that that area yeah i do believe and i and you know in hindsight you can always it's always easy to say in hindsight but you can see how everything in not just music actually and the entire audio department in halo had shaped the gaming industry and the audio sound to come after where we came from 8-bit and all of that into you know monks chanting and you see these people who will literally, I mean, it's not just in the US, my gamer friends here or whatever, you know, heavy metal alternative rock they listen to, and then all of a sudden they'll be singing the monk chant, and I'll be telling them, hey, you know, that's a Gregorian chant, right? What's a Gregorian chant? And, <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, you, like you said, all of a sudden everyone started, started to have interest. All the, all the guys would be humming that in the, in the boys' bathroom in, at school, and it became a global made of it had a very profound impact even over here across the pacific believe it or not that that movement i was one of the kids that were well not kid then i was one of the teens that were impacted by that movement and then i said hey you know somebody wrote this i could be that somebody (laughs) and that's how that's how that's how the path kind of unfolded is it surreal now not just having met marty but like being a personal friend with him you know had you had you told your teen self that would you have been like no way oh definitely no way if that was <laughs> when i was a teen you know you never think of things so far and uh, like things are so small your world is so small when you're a teen you would never be thinking on that scale ever i mean uh, give credit to to those teens who who are already thinking on that scale but I, de- I definitely was not one of them but I, I think when I first met Marty, it definitely had that moment of, I, I told him, I probably know your music better than you do. <laughs> uh, and then Marty, Marty gave me a few lessons in, back, back in the day. Uh, that was way before I did Red Sea. I was, I, had, I was writing music then and Marty would be giving me some good, very good critique. So I suppose, yeah, when I, first, when I was first, uh, we weren't on that friendship relationship that kind of yeah i was still kind of student teacher relationship then that was already surreal enough for me i remember bringing my little halo 2 
CD for him to sign. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then after a while, we became friends. I was Marty. Essentially, back in back in the day, Marty gave me a checklist of what I should be doing uh, if I really wanted to make it. I just kind of followed that checklist and did a lot of things. Now the uh, the checklist wasn't okay. Go do this. Do do this. As this is how you should be mentally thinking.、Hmm. This is how you should. This is what you should be doing with your free time. It's it's that kind of thing. Because as we all know, there's no one size checklist that of how to be a film composer. But there are things you can do to help yourself be in a better position. So then, those are the things Marty ha- ha- told me I should be doing, and and I did all of that, and here I am. And so, yeah, he helped. He helped me quite a bit, and we have a. Well, he he's not in. Obviously, not over here. So then. It would be on FaceTime or Discord. We'd be either talking about music or just you know joking around, having a good time. <laughs> <You> no, <know? Yeah. laughs>、yeah. I love it. That's so cool. I don't want you to give away any of your secrets of success, but is there anything from the checklist that you can share? So I'd say when I was fourteen or fifteen, something like that, I. I, I that was when I first had the thought of okay I think I, I want to be a film composer. Prior to that, I actually wanted to be a conductor for the longest time because I was an orchestra nerd. I remember in first grade when you know in first grade a very common thing we had to do in grade school was to write down what you want to be when you grow up. And then so in first grade I want I, I wrote down I wanted to be a conductor because when I was an orchestra then the guy waving his arms looked like he was cool and <laughs> and I wanted to be that guy. So then I suppose I was that I was in music for the I was studying music for the longest time and I put you know all the eggs in one basket and that was music for me until I I I realized and and when I was fourteen or fifteen oh someone has to write this kind of stuff and that seemed like it was cooler than being a conductor while still being musically related and it kind of ties into my love for film and gaming so I was like yeah I probably should do that instead. So when I made that decision, I read up on other resources online, or basically everything I I read up on, and everyone, musician or not, was telling me, "Oh, it's basically impossible. <laughs> it's very difficult to do." <laughs> and then I was like, "Ah,、oh, okay. Well, I ah,、uh, well, that was kind of scary. That I suppose that I didn't give up because、uh, I I told myself that、oh, okay, you know, I I still have time and." I really don't have much to lose, so then、um, it's very stubborn for me to say. But I really did put all my eggs into one basket, and I didn't think of I didn't have another you know fail or fail safe fail safe plan. It was just oh I'll do everything I can my ability to at least prepare myself for an audition or something for when the one opportunity comes because you you really only get one shot. I got one shot to to land. My breakout film was Operation Red Sea, and that was a huge success over here. But I, I had one shot to land that, and if I, you know, if you fail that one shot, then people would start knowing who you are as a guy, as a guy who failed his one shot, and you know, you won't get films to come. So I, I knew very early on that I really wanted to make my first impression very strong, and so I was. My college housemates would tell you the same, but I'd be just always in the basement. They wouldn't know how. They would just tell me, "Oh, yeah, he's in the basement. He's in the basement. He's in the basement." <laughs> I would be score studying to like、uh, Stravinsky, a composer I really, really liked. Stravinsky or Akhmatov. I'd be just taking their scores, and 
this is uh, one thing in Wien I really got out of was most of my classes were just then was just me and the professor and then so when I was studying these scores the next day I would bring to my professor and then we'd be just talking about these scores and then I'd read more of these scores so it becomes a very individualized thing for me at least um but you know because of the, because of all these circumstances it drove me into a very antisocial kind of life where I kept on preparing myself more than I should be I I was a big gamer when I was a kid and this is one analogy I always told some of my friends so I'm not sure if people play Pokemon in the states Pokemon is a game I play I don't play anymore but I played up to I think like generation 4 or something back then when you play on a Game Boy you would always like every all of my friends would you would like the point of Pokemon for everyone who doesn't know what it is as you have a team of Pokemon of these guys on your team and you fight the champion, you overtake the champion. And when you beat the champion, you basically win the game, right? So then you would always overtrain, like train to reach a higher level than you were recommended to, to make so that you can, you know, you had certain that you can beat the champion. So, you know, that kind of like logic of Pokemon gaming, that was kind of like the model as a kid, you know, as a kid who didn't know much. Like, at least I knew that. <laughs> at least I knew that uh, of, okay, I should over-prepare myself. And if you have, you know, as a kid, when you play Pokemon, if you don't, didn't know what to do, you just go in the water and you train. You just, <laughs> and that's what you did. And, you know, there's so much repertoire in music that there's so much good stuff over there that you might not necessarily come across when you just study in a course. And once you attain the knowledge of, okay, uh, this is how you break down a piece and this is actually what the composer's thinking when he wrote these things, when he paired, let's say, the violas and the high register of the oboe together, this is what he was thinking. And when, when you approach other repertoire you didn't know, then that's kind of what I did. And a statistic, I, 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 I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure if it's right, but I was told that about 70% of the film industry have their jobs because they have a prior connection to the film industry. Let's say like, uh, my dad's Brad Pitt or something like that. <laughs> uh, and the 30% is the rest of the world, you know, and you try to fight for that 30%, whatever, whatever post you are. And film composers is one of the many roles in the film industry. Uh, again, I'm not sure if that's true, but, um, those, these kind of scary statistics and everyone telling me how hard it is, it was just kind of like motivation for me to, uh, you better work harder because, you know, it's very tough. And I was warned early on, so I was kind of mentally prepared how hard it was. And lo and behold, yeah, it was pretty hard, but then, you know, we got through that. And so <laughs> yeah, I'm talking about, about it now. Yeah, and, and whether or not that's, that's true, like the principle reigns the same. But I, I've got to say, yeah, 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 Pokemon, I remember when it came out on Game Boy in the mid or late 90s in the US and like, it was massive. Mm. I had it and everyone I know had it. And then... Oh, okay. <laughs> it's. I think it's still pretty popular. I never expected that anyone <laughs> to ever hear a Pokemon analogy for film scoring. But <laughs> you know what? It is, it's really apt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, I was I was more of a yeah. Final Fantasy guy as far as the, the overtraining, but... Sure, that's right. You know, same principles. <laughs> same principles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So look, Elliot, I I hate to uh, to end this now, but it's uh, it's getting late for me. I I need to go to bed. My wife's probably wondering where the hell I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I appreciate you joining me so much, and I'm looking forward to the release of the Battle of Lake Changjin. I don't you know who knows whether when it'll get a release in the U.S., uh, but hopefully at some point. 
pleasure. I really enjoyed talking about it. And it was a lot of surprises along the way. So, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you, you take care Monday morning for you. So you've got the whole week ahead of you. Yep. Enjoy it. Enjoy not having the crushing deadlines for the moment. Yeah, 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 yeah.